0: You said you were doing sculptures? Mm-hmm. What got you into doing that? Um, well, I have my MFA, Masters in Fine Arts, um, and, like, most of an undergrad in art. So I've always liked, I've always experimented. Like, in my MFA, I experimented with sculpture. Installation is kind of the more fancy term for it. And it's more installation than it is sculpture. But, um, yeah, I, uh, like, right now I've got a show on, uh, that just opened this Saturday um, at the Saskatchewan Maritime Museum, which is a cheeky name. It's actually not a maritime museum. <laughs> 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 and uh, yeah, so it's open for three months. July 22nd, it closes. So in there, there's a an installation piece using a large photographic print. And then it's been turned into a sculpture using burned logs to kind of suspend it, like cut holes through the print. The print's quite big. It's like like four by six feet, and then I had holes routered through it, four holes, and uh, I've got four burned, like burned log poles that I I like stuck in the in the holes in the print, and then have suspended the print <laughs> on the poles, kind of like a like Almost a, a TP sort and then of um, with avoiding the word TP because I'm not First Nations. It yeah. doesn't really. I was really worried about that to be honest when I made it. That it would look that people would say, "Oh, what, what is this? A TP? And you know what I mean, like. Yeah. So, but it doesn't look like a TP. It's way flatter. It's only four poles, and there's a a giant print in the middle, like on an aluminum sheet. Yeah. It's called die bond, so it's like a stiff aluminum sheet that has this giant print on it.
1: Oh, and you had to get the print on that aluminum sheet.
0: Yeah. 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 So, and then the rest of the prints in the show are all also on this aluminum sheeting that's die bond. It's like a common material that uh, photographers will use to print on. It's like you can do it without framing it, you know, because it's a stiff and it's a nice clean look. It has no frame. It sort of sits off the wall a little bit. It's like a nice minimal kind of look. I've always, I really like, you know, like you go to an art gallery and you see an installation or something. Um you know, like it, that can really elevate an exhibition in my mind in conjunction with other stuff. It kind of adds to the, the breadth of it, you know?
1: Yeah, it really creates but, that ambiance there.
0: Yeah, totally, yeah. What
1: considerations do you have to take into account when you're doing these installations?
0: Uh, well, um, I mean, it starts, started with a sketch, like an idea in my head, and then a sketch of what I thought it would look like or how I wanted it to look like. Um, And surprisingly, which it doesn't always work out, but it actually looks a lot like what the sketch originally looked like. So I'm really happy that it turned out because it it doesn't always turn out, you know, because the reality of like the real world making something work, you have to make compromises sometimes, you know. Um, But then I did a a full scale test on it. I got like uh, like foam core. It's like poster board kind of stuff, you know, like half inch, though, like thicker and cut holes and made a to scale piece out of that foam foam board just to mess around with it and experiment with will it even work? And it was a total failure, you know, like, (laughs) like collapsed and like I had to use milk crates to hold it up and, you know, lots of frustrations to get this thing to actually work. Um, But the only way to do it is to, is to fail at it. And then, you know, then I came up with the idea of using screws to kind of underneath the print, the sort of into the burned logs to kind of hold, the print at where I wanted it to sit um, and then I also realized that I had to bind the poles together at the top which I didn't originally want to do so I guess it wasn't exactly how I envis- envisioned it but it looks very similar to that original sketch um, and that kind of helps it from wanting to sag out because without that it, it, I'm not sure how you'd stop it from kind of sagging yeah, and wanted sagging to Break out. that piece down. Yeah, so you know that all that, and then I put a, I put like a big, um, like a metal frame underneath the print to keep it super rigid. So I wanted it to look uh, really flat. I didn't want it to torque at all. Oh, so you wanted zero movement. Zero movement, just totally flat, like a perfect two D plane. You know, because the show is a is essentially it was about landscape a little bit, not in the cliche or uh, traditional sense. Um, you'd go and thinking that it's landscape and go look at it and go, well, what the, what is he talking (laughs) about? Like, (laughs) this is not landscape, but it's out of, it's, it's sort of a newer, you know, a little more edgy uh, kind of thing. But so I really wanted it. So it's a play on the landscape a little bit. Like it's a, it's a picture of a landscape that's been penetrated by burned logs. And um, the whole show is kind of, you know, people will talk about it in, in the realm of landscape. Right. So, the piece is, has to do with, with that, you know?
1: Yeah, it is part of the landscape.
0: It's part of... And it's when you see it, it's, it's like... And it's kind of a neat play because it's a two-dimensional... Ob, like, it's a three-dimensional object, but it's a two-dimensional print of landscape. So it it has this sort of... this sort of These little, like, run-alongs that once you look at it and think about it and go, oh, wait a minute, this is actually a picture of a landscape in 2D in a th- as a 3D object, you know? So yeah. all those things have spoiled it for you You (laughs) yeah you won't be able to figure that on your own now (laughs) yeah
1: with the installations they have to be viewed from all angles
0: yes totally yeah how how
1: challenging is that
0: for this i wasn't yeah I, i would think that that's kind of a fundamental not always but it's that would be a fundamental for any good installation or sculpture like the term in the round is what's used in like art school about about an object that you can view in the round you know what I mean so I think that's integral to any sculpture but not not always the case like there's there's examples in our history of you know sculptures uh that were that are just on the floor or like land sculpture where people like make trails and whatever and photograph that or or you can actually go look at it in in real life you know like those would be kind of a a flat two-dimensional thing on on the landscape you know um, yeah. This and this particular object, it's it, it's. I want people to see it, to walk around it, and look at it from all angles. And and certainly, like any time, I think someone makes a sculpture or an installation, you want people to look at the details of it. It's like any art, any painting, or any good photograph or anything. Pe- you want people to get up close, look at it, go at far, look at it. You know, and in this case, it's because it's people who I who are friends of mine that are artists that or that I work with at the Ramey. Um, they're like, oh, that's ambitious. And, you know, how did you do that? And because and, it looks like pretty precarious when you see it. It looks like it wants to fall, collapse, or if you bumped it, it might fall over, which it might, but <laughs> probably not. It's actually taped to the floor with 3M tape. And uh, I think you'd have to bump it hard to, to get it to really fall apart. And I don't think it would because it's all bound together at the top. And, and there's screws kind of holding the print up. and But all those little illusions are there right like you can't see the screws but you know uh, like if you're looking at it from like a a technical point of view to try and figure out how is this thing standing you you will eventually and 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 you might look under it and go oh okay well yeah there's screws there's a frame you know but all that's like part of the uh, like a the magician trick, right so um because when you see it you have to and to look under it it's the prints only like two milk crates off the ground so to speak right because I want you to see the image I don't not too high right so you'd have to get down your knees and look underneath to to actually see how it actually works yeah (laughs) it is
1: sort of a magic trick yeah yeah think about it totally
0: yeah it's like sleight of hand not sleight of hand it's sleight of it's it's an illusion yeah it's illusion yeah Yeah, it's an illusion
1: that's cool Mm -hmm. what gave you the inspiration to do this
0: well originally I got like an artist res like after I did my MFA I used to paint that was paint draw that was kind of the what I got my MFA, and my master's in, um, but I had kids right, right as I graduated. I our first kid came out, and you know, and I struggled to to paint after that. Um, it, painting takes so much time. Like any any you can imagine, if you embark on a painting, even if you don't know what you're doing, that you'd probably allot yourself three hours the first time, or an hour, or you know what I mean. Like, and then you get into the painting, and you realize that kids and family and jobs and it's hard to uh, to have a three-hour stint and that and that's a short time like during the mfa i'd work on stuff all day i'd get in in the morning and treat it like a job i'd have notes from the night before i'd look at before i even looked at the piece you know because those fresh eyes are always the best eyes to like see something you know you'll see the mistake or you'll see i need to do this you know um i i treat I treat all this like a job like Anyway, so I, I I couldn't paint. I moved into not doing art for a while. And then a friend of mine who I followed his work on Instagram for a long time, and he's like, you know, you should, he knew my issue. And he said, well, why don't you photograph? You use photo, photography in your painting. Like, why would you not You continue to, to do that? Because in my painting, I'd be photographing stuff for paintings. And then I'd kind of compile a collection of ideas out of the photographs to to compose whatever it was, the idea of the painting, you know? Um, so I just kind of transferred that into photography and, and then sort of started on Instagram and then that sort of slowly grew and grew and grew. Um, and then, a uh, just a philanthropist guy in town who, um, loves the arts. He's got a, a residency and he, he follows my work and he said, Hey, you should apply for this, which I didn't even know about it, you know? And so I did and I got the residency and then I did that and, uh, um, I can't remember your question now. I've deviated too much. It was <laughs> what around... was the inspiration? Oh, the inspiration, right. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, so I, when I went up to the residency, I knew that I wanted to include the potential of installation art because I had some of these ideas beforehand. The uh, residency was in Mississippi, and there's a lot of forest fires up there, uh, like a lot of burned land. Uh, so I knew I wanted to spend time trying to photograph the burns and um, and collect different cool burned objects that were out of the forest, you know? And so um, that's, I knew I wanted to do installation and then it sort of, I kept finding these cool burned poles and I thought, I bet you I could make something neat that where I have an installation that that can sort of span between photography and um, and sculpture installation. And that idea just kind of popped in my head one day walking around out there in the in the burns. So I have all these burned logs in my garage, <laughs> If you want one. (laughs) So this is the first installation you've done? This is the first one I've done that has been in a show. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But it's not the first one I've done. I've done a bunch in my MFA. You have to exhibit every couple weeks. Um, And it's a a really casual thing. It's not like a formal gallery thing. It's like, you know, the professors come in and all the students that are in the MFA come in. Everyone gives you a critique. So I had installation stuff set up for them to see. And always using kind of natural materials. Um, I was using willow to weave sort of like, like dome shapes and stuff out of willow. Mm, so those yeah.
1: dome shapes, and that's added. Yeah, to it's kind structure. of related. Yeah, yeah it's like it really structural is. stuff.
0: And, and my paintings were very much about structure. And like, you know, what I wrote about in, in the MFA was about sort of the origins of structure and the philosophy of it and that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I don't know why I'm so interested in it, you know, but I just am, I am drawn to, you know, like, for example, there's a really good exhibition on it, the Raimi Modern right now, um, Denise Tomasis, she's a New York painter. She died tragically young, uh, donated her one of her kidneys to for someone else. And she's just an unbelievable painter. Like, I, you can, I don't want to speak for anyone, but, like, most people would walk in there and go, wow, this is painting, you know, and it's very architectural. And it's kind of abstract, but you can tell that it's derived from, you know, structures, right? And um, I would say that, like, you know, I would sort of share a lot of values or interests with her as an example. That is something that people can go see right now at the Ramy Modern. Little plug. <laughs> it's up for whatever. It just opened, like, a couple weeks ago. So you're into structures. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. I photograph a lot of structural stuff. I photograph a lot of structures and the shadows, like, if it's sunny, I like the shadow that comes off the structures and sort of the abstraction that you can get in there and abandoned places and
1: it gives you that feel
0: yeah yeah it's like mix
1: of nature yes, and humans totally oh.
0: well and I certainly like you'd see my work and you would see that it's it's always devoid of humans but it's always about human presence you know and and certainly on the landscape and we are just sitting on a rock floating around in space following a star that goes (laughs) through our galaxy at some staggering speed right like how can you divorce yourself from and 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 really in my opinion all art comes from the landscape in some manner or well it has to it all does because even the pigments people are on the land we're sitting on the on the rock flying through space like it's yeah What's I mean, the
1: residency you had to do?
0: It's called the We Two Artist Residency, and it's sponsored by um, uh, Thompson Camps. And their Instagram hashtag is Adventure Destinations. Right. Adventure dot destinations. But you go up there, and what's the goal of this
1: residency for you?
0: Yeah, they give you, they hope that you'll stay for a month. I stayed for two and a half weeks because I've got kids and a full-time job. Um and then you get access to they give you a weekly per diem they give you a cabin one of their cabins that they rent to tourists to stay in they give you the option of going to one of their outpost base like cabins if you wish to do that i didn't do that um they do say there's limited access to like the float plane which i took one ride but it was more just to help um like close one of their camps um but i didn't i kind of thought like maybe to get close to a burn um, but that summer, there was a whole whack of it was a bad summer for burns, and there was a whole bunch of really fresh burns really close to town Ooh. to miss an So it wasn't didn't need to, you know. Yeah. So um, they brought you in mm-hmm. to
1: do art. Yeah, that was specifically the focus, and they were yes. giving you the tools, yeah. and the time to yes. look around and see what you can create. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And like someone that's more like in you know, a drawing or painting, more traditional stuff, they would probably either do an outpost camp or they'd stay at the cabin and kind of tour around a bit and do whatever they do draw paint Um, but for me it was I'm very much location based and so I I spent the first couple days kind of picking everyone's brain that would talk to me (laughs) in town (laughs) Uh, mostly at Thompson camps and then at the Osprey Wings there's like a big float plane base there Um, between the two and I've got all kinds of cool locations that I went and drove to with my truck and
1: what was a standout location for you
0: um, a couple for sure exploration sites there's one really close to the the road that you can access that uh, just goes for miles and miles back into the bush and so you know I just took my dog and my rifle and my cameras and hiked back into the as far as I could go, you know, and it just keeps going. But lots of great shots out of there. Really neat, interesting, like highly damaged landscape. Um, big, brutal, dirty, muddy roads that they're using skid steers or, or not skid steers. Um, those big uh, forestry equipment to to do drilling. I guess it's the only thing that can really uh, drive through the boreal forest. And I, I understand, like obviously we need minerals. I'm not i'm not particularly like an environmentalist or anything i just look at things in a in a from an observatory manner and i'm i like to present the viewer with things that might upset them or or create some discussion around the nature of what i'm photographing um you know but i i just there's a real beautiful destructive beauty in it like when you see the photographs you they are beautiful i think they're you yeah, but you get to see I, I, the aftermath of Yeah. Exploration. Yeah, and I I mean I kind of spend time getting like getting a good money shot of it. I put all the sort of the good things that you would do that anyone would do to take a good picture, you know. I mean, most people can take a good picture of their family. Have the sun at your back, you know, like center it on them, whatever. Like most people can kind of figure that out. So I mean, I and I have lots of skill with camera and I have a degree and whatever, so I mean there's a few more tricks I know than most people, but I spend time trying to create a beautiful image of something that's of the subject matter, so it's a it creates that nice juxtaposition that it's a beautifully composed image, but it's of something 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 that's just ravished, you know, (laughs) kind of thing, right? So, what's a trick you picked up
1: from all this knowledge?
0: Yeah, like that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's sort of an evolution. Like, I think if you looked at my feed and you kind of scrolled right back to the beginning, you'd see. Um, you know that there 's been an evolution of like w- what I shoot, how I shoot it, um but you know i 've always taken photos, so it 's like it goes even further back, like back to the the days when I was you know like a canoe guide. I always had a camera, and I, I would always take you know because you 're in places that are beautiful and you 'd see beautiful things, and so I always had a camera, and it was kind of the same problem then i couldn 't have enough time to draw. Or paint because I'm supposed to be the guide of a canoe trip. I'm, you know, it's a busy job. You you've got to do all these things, right? Uh, So I use the camera as a means of, of kind of ironically. Now I'm back to the camera because it's a quick way of my practice can be like, unlike painting where I need three hours minimum at a time and that barely scratches the surface. You could spend three hours mixing paint, you know, getting all the different colors you're going to use for the painting, you know, like. Whereas photography, I can just see something and stop and photograph it. Or I'm walking, and I always have a camera with me. And these days, there's small cameras you can buy that are have giant, expensive sensors in them. And you can put that in your pocket, you know? So I, I, it's like no excuse. I always have that with me, that little camera.
1: The accessibility is there. Yeah, you can I do just it anywhere.
0: pull it out, and I see something. And I mean, I just like doing my stuff today. I've already taken photographs of two different things you know like i may or may not use them but i always and i always get looked at some ladies looking at me while i'm taking a picture of this you know
1: so it's part of your life it is <laughs> oh yeah my kids are all over like dad
0: are you stopping again what is that you know and, or, <laughs> or 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 the other way they'll be like dad look at this look at that see that whatever it is like, Oh uh, wow, nice they support you yeah they support me how
1: is this canoe guide thing what
0: yeah in my 20s i i worked as a for quite a while actually about seven years i've worked as a professional Canoe guide, so it was like whitewater, mostly whitewater trips. I was lucky when I got into it um, that the the head whitewater guide was kind of on their way out, so I had my first summer flat water and kind of get my feet wet, so to speak. And then this guy left, and at the time I was in university at Thunder Bay, and I was wholeheartedly into whitewater kayaking. Um, so I had a, I was a very skilled whitewater practitioner at that point so it was an obvious transition to make to when this guy left to be like hey Darren do you want to would you could you start doing these trips because we need someone who has whitewater experience to do the trips." so I just moved into it in my second year and so and it, you know and those trips are great because all the all the clients are repeat and it's kind of like doing a canoe trip with friends because they all help out. They, you know, they all, they're all good canoers. They, you don't know, have to set up their tent. They all help with cooking and collecting firewood and all of the kind of busy stuff that goes along with any canoe trip, you know, versus other trips. Like when, you know, in your first couple of years, you get a lot of like weekend trips or you get like the five days and, you know, there's always dud clients that are like, I'm on vacation. I'm not going to. I'm just going to hang out, you know, and I've certainly had that, like, which is super frustrating. But.
1: So, what's a dud client? What are they doing?
0: Um, I had this one trip. It was a, a whitewater trip, and there was a family that, that the owner knew. And so, normally, we don't take families on whitewater trips, but we did. We did the French River in Ontario, which is a classic. It, it flows from sort of North Bay out into Georgian Bay. Georgian Bay is part of Lake Huron. And it's uh, Georgian Bay, if anyone knows where that is. It's like uh, a very exposed Canadian Shield um, shoreline. And uh, the area is known as like the 30,000 Islands. And there's like Killarney Provincial Parks in there and all these really cool French, French River Provincial Park. So we did this trip there and it was like a hell trip. It was, um, I had just spent the previous winter in Joshua Tree um, with the, base camp manager at the canoe place who's a big rock climber we were down there climbing um for a couple months at joshua tree and then a few other locations in the desert and so my tent was wrecked from the uv but i didn't really like realize that yet because i was in my 20s and so that trip was a hell trip because it rained the whole time it was windy my tent failed on the first night so i didn't even have a tent it was just it just leaked like crazy and uh and trying to fix it, I like a pole broke at some point and I And it put a hole through the fly. And so like, I spent the rest of the trip sort of sleeping under the kitchen tarp. But it's buggy. And you know, so then it, it was tough. And I ended up having like a, a cold on that trip. And then dealing with this family, which is like, they were very busy. But you know, as you know, as a father yourself, it's like they're doing the kid thing. And they were, you know, and then I had these two dud clients that were just hanging out and like, you know, just not contributing at all. And, like, in my mind, I'm like, and we always encourage that as part of, like, the marketing of the trips is, like, you're kind of, like, you can't just sit around. Like, you should help out, you know? And and, in better words than that, and in the brochure or whatever, it was in the literature, you know, and these two guys are just chillaxing the whole time, and I have a cold, and this family is busting their buttons trying to do the family thing. And, and you know, it just was like, am I my tent doesn't work and it was just like you know and i've always i like those comfort zone break things though like it's good you sort of get comfortable and and with anything and it's kind of good to sort of remind yourself and that was a good reminder for me because my comfort zone was my tent like i could have a hell day out guiding raining windy whatever someone had an injury a boat got smashed in a rapid but i knew at the end of the day i always have my tent that was dry and warm and I could go in there. And so it was, I was, you know, a little probably grumpy the first day and my tent's gone, you know, whatever. But yeah, like then I realized quickly, I'm like, Oh, this is just sort of a reminder that like, it's good to break that comfort zone to not rely on the tent, you know, and necessarily like, I mean, shit, the Voyagers never had tents, right? Like (laughs) they just slept up in crappy wool sleeping pads or whatever. And there's bugs and, you know, I mean that's people are tough, right? Like
1: So you really appreciated what you had, even yeah. though your tent was destroyed.
0: Yeah, I think I might have realized that after the trip, but like <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know. So yeah. a dud client is somebody who's kind of watching a movie. Yeah. Compared to a great one would be they're in the action, yeah. they're in the play.
0: Yeah. They want to see the moving pieces. Yeah. I mean, why else are you there? You're there, you're paying for an experience. Yeah. And so the experience isn't just if you want to hang out, then go hang out at Club Med. Like <laughs> if you wanna come on a canoe trip, then part of what is good about a canoe trip is that they're hard and that it breaks your comfort zone
1: yeah, you get
0: definitely. rained on all day or it's windy and you got to paddle 20 kilometers or whatever some big portage that's people get really proud of oh i can't believe i did that you know i just did a 800 meter portage and i carried this 100 pound pack or you know like a lot of people don't get to experience that kind of thing and, and then they feel really it sort of wakes them up like wow like i'm capable of this. i am capable of this i just did a kilometer portage you know or whatever like there's there's longer ones than that that we'd take clients on so mm -hmm. what was your favorite place to guide um probably i mean it was all in ontario um that's a good question a few it'd be a river probably the des moines river which is like flows into the ottawa river upstream of ottawa on the quebec side and that one's like a classic whitewater canoe trip like one of the classic ones and it's just filled with rapids. And they're all a style of rapid called pool and drop. So there's a pool above it, a, some kind of rapid, and then a pool below it. So if things go wrong, someone dumps, all the packs kind of end up down at the bottom and they're not flowing off. into. Or they the... collect in that yeah.
1: still. There's still water in yeah. these rapids.
0: That's right. Well, no, at the bottom, right? Uh, like, oh, at the very bottom. Yeah, right. and that's kind of typical of Canadian Shield whitewater is it's, it's all pool drop um whereas a river like the nahani or other mountain rivers are not like that they just go forever and i mean not forever but like you'll have a rapid that's 20 kilometers long so you can lose a lot of gear. yeah and in that case like there's kind of two two strategies for tripping um one for pool drop you don't tie your packs in you let them you make sure they're waterproof obviously i know any whitewater water trip but you never strap them in because they can act they can you know boat tips over you may not get the boat off a rock you know If it wraps itself around a rock, all that hydraulic pressure, it's hundreds and hundreds of pounds of pressure on it. Like you may not get it off and then you lose all your stuff. So it's better to not have your packs tied into your pack that they float free. And so then, you know what I mean? Like it's, it sort of makes sense, right? Whereas in a river like the But you have to know that there's a
1: pool at the end
0: yeah okay. yeah yeah and most people prob- i don't know I mean I, I'm sure that mistake gets made a lot with amateurs that are like, Here we are, we're on the Churchill, let's go, you know, and they we better strap these babies in, like eh, like you might be okay, like if it doesn't wrap, you're probably fine, but like it also can act as like a sea anchor, so say the boat's upside down, the pack's strapped in, but then it hangs out underneath the water, and then it gets snagged on a rock, now you got your canoe stuck. You know I mean it, it can just be a nightmare and if you don't have your stuff then you know tents or food or the equipment packs in there or something you know it can be a, a problem right like uh, whereas nahani river like a mountain river you would strap them in and often they'll use spray deck setups on their canoes and you know like you What's just spray deck a spray deck is like a, like a kayak has like a a skirt that goes around it you'd wear a skirt and there's a cockpit rim that you put that skirt on so then you're totally waterproof because um, you don't want water getting into your kayak when you're in the white water because you're completely in, oh yeah you don't right? want water okay no because I mean, you sink or you know yeah. it's no good right um, whereas and so the same idea is for a canoe they just make a an expensive full length full like a top for the canoe that that is not 100% waterproof but it's you know it'll keep out more than it'll keep all the splashes out and and that'll dump you more than anything like you might be a very skilled practitioner with great bracing technique and all this kind of stuff but if you get too much water in your canoe you know you're gonna go down probably or or you know when the canoe tips to the right or left all that 400 pounds of water goes that way it's really hard to stop it from dumping you know you can't fight the nature of the beast or the physics of it. No, and the splashing adds up, right? Like if if you're in the Nahani and you're in a twenty kilometer long, grade two or three plus rapid, you're going to get lots of water coming over the the gunnels into the canoe. So without a spray, you have to have a spray deck there, you know, and you have to strap your your stuff in. And in that case, you'd try to stay with the canoe. If you dumped, you'd try and stay with the canoe as you went through the rapid. And um, those rapids aren't. They're, they're if anyone's done mountain rivers they're they're often very gravelly um, there are sections of canyon where you'd get beefier water like waterfalls and things that you portage around but canoe whitewater is you portage that stuff obviously and you run things that you that you can run you know like it's different than obviously kayaking you can you, people run waterfalls they run grade four grade five whitewater Um, because you're waterproof you're in a small boat you don't have your equipment with you you know what i mean like it's a totally different sport
1: you're you're lower drag and your your vessel is more waterproof yeah
0: yeah Mm
1: -hmm. grade four and five what's the highest
0: grade six yeah which is considered impossible but there are some crazies out there like some red bull kayakers that will run previously considered grade Six, which are still grade six, you know, like you'd see it and think, "Wow, someone actually ran that," or watch a video of someone running that. Like, yeah, it's unbelievable. Some of the things that people the, have run, like yeah. the waterfall height, is is stupid. You know, like crazy high, yeah, hundred and thirty feet or something like that.
1: Ooh, that's yeah. a limit. That's yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. For the longest time, that was held by a, a I think he's an American paddler, but it was in Canada. It's the falls near. Right near Banff, between Banff and Canmore, there's like a classic hike you can do that's close to the highway. I can't think of the name of the falls right now, but lots of people have probably hiked in there. And it's like a 98-foot waterfall. And so the first huge waterfall was run was in Canada, and it held the record for years, the 98-foot falls. Some guy went off a 98-foot fall
1: in a kayak? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that held the record for a long time. When we see the falls, it's like, wow, like it's not, it's, it's a very tall fall, but it's sort of, the bottom of it it kind of hits the the edge of the bowl that the water all spills into and uh that guy at the time he put jug milk jugs of water in the bow of his of his, the front of his boat to keep make sure that it stayed pointing down um and, and not have it tumble in the air or anything like that and to stabilize himself yeah to keep it so he knew for sure that it would stay pointing down so he would land in what they call a piton position or like a like a you know yeah the way you'd want to land not Absolutely.
1: flat <laughs> well, you don't want to land flat
0: well you do in other cases in in most lower waterfalls you want to land flat like anything that's in sort of the even 50 foot range surprisingly you want to try and land flat depending on the falls because you can get stuck in the hydraulic that's created from the the falls right and landing flat it's called boofing, and it allows you to to sort of pop out away from the falls you don't get, get a, much depth then yeah and it, you kind of deflect away from it which is what you want you want to get away from the falls the minute you've gone in right and so and and the move you do above it is called a booth move which is basically you you do one last powerful stroke right as you're going over the lip of the falls and you do a little hip toss like you kind of shuck your hips forward
1: yeah to keep yourself level then to,
0: and to keep yourself going off yeah level and 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 you're, you're creating a bit of gas pedal right at the key point. As you're going over the brink, you, you put this gas on one or two more strokes. Usually it's one, the boof move. And it, and it sort of initiates the kayak nose, the bow, being not piton, being more more flat.
1: Oh, yeah, not down. So piton yeah. is down.
0: Piton kind of straight up and down. Straight up and vertical. Yeah. Vertical. And yeah. you want to be horizontal and give yeah. it a little bit of
1: gas to clear.
0: That way when you land, you're like... It scoops you out and away from the falls.
1: Okay, it skims you right yeah, off. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and people think, well, that's crazy. Huh? Fifty feet, you must hurt your back, you know. But what you're landing on is aerated water, so it's like landing on a huge air cushion, because it's fifty percent air, fifty percent water. That's why it's white, because the air is in there, and it's just bubbles, right? And so when you land on it, it's like landing on one of those like daredevil, like
1: oh yeah, it, could, pads. it cushions
0: you. It cushions you.
1: There's no surface tension because of the bubbling water. That's
0: right. But at a hundred feet, it doesn't. You know, but at 30 feet or 40 feet, it, it does. You can do a boof move. Yeah, but at um, 100,
1: even that aerated water,
0: it doesn't no, protect you I from mean, the surface. Yeah, engine. you're just starting to get your speed is, you know, not terminal velocity, but like pretty fast, you're I'm getting sure. Up there. Yeah, you're, you're getting up get there. Of, you yeah. can
1: hit a lot, you can get a lot of damage from that yeah. stop.
0: I mean, even watching the video of the current record is because there's like GoPro. Of it there 's drone shots of it and stuff, and it just makes my palm sweat just watching from the the first person perspective watching them go over the falls. you know you 're just like, man, like that is so how do you even but when you when you listen to them talk about it in the video, it just looks like they 've woken up on a Saturday morning and a bunch of high fives and they slap a bunch of kayaks on the car and they drive off that 's what it looks like in the video, but then often they'll they'll dissect that in in a good video and talk about how many years it took this person to even consider this and the right conditions and and i learned in my day from whitewater that like because we always had a strategy of that was learned from mistakes and by experience was when we were running stuff in in the spring when rivers are up um, we had a, a, a a strategy where we always took a turn so it was like year number one You're number two, you're number three, or depending on how many you're with in a group. Usually, it was like three to four, um, and you just rotate the number. So you know whoever went last, and now it's number two. Next time, next next fall or next rapid you come to, it's now number three's turn. Because the, the problem is, is people tend to if they're scared or if they're less experienced than someone else, they'll do what's called ducky style, which is a great way to run something. Um, where you follow someone who's more experienced than you over a waterfall or over into a rapid because then you can get yourself right in the right spot where you need to be to have the correct line down down the rapid right because it's all about that like you get out you scout you pick your line you try to see see that line and I always had a rule that I learned that the hard way if I couldn't see the line in the first kind of 30 seconds to a minute um, I wouldn't run it I'd walk around it and there was days where you know I've run this rapid many times but this day I'm not running it and then the next day I might you know or two days later when you come back and run it again I might because it's all like if I couldn't see it or if I couldn't feel it you know and all of us would get kind of good at like that skill of like being able to measure yourself and not try not to make a foolish mistake because you're just you know you're actually not going to do a good job today for whatever reason but you you feel pressured into it or and that sort of one two three four style of running things really helps with that because then there's no pressure there's less pressure you're just sort of like it's my turn no one would give you a hard time you need safety on shore anyways you know like you'd sort of take turns running it and you'd have the other three or two on safety with throw bags kind of halfway down and then at the bottom in case you dump or you swim or something like that.
1: Oh, so you're changing the turn order and the the people that are yeah. watching, they're on the shore. They're right, on the shore watching you.
0: it, ready to save you and filming because we always film this stuff too, you know. But, <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we actually had a film in the Water Walker Festival years ago that made, made the tour, which is like an Ontario um, film festival, like a really small Banff film festival for uh, uh, whitewater, anything kind of whitewater or tripping or whatever we had, we had a, it was called, uh, like, I think it was like a really cheesy name, Thunder Bay styles two or something like that. (laughs) It's a good video though.
1: Yeah. How do you get focused before you're going to run something big?
0: Um, yeah. Like the other part of that would be like the 32nd, a minute rule would be, um, also if I did see the line and I felt confident in it, I'd go run it right away because I didn't want to allow any space to occur where I would start to doubt it. And so that was also important. If I felt confident, I could feel that confidence. I could see the line. I'm like, I know I can do that. you know. Then I'd walk up and get my upstream marker for the entrance to the line because it always looks different when you get in the river. And now you're like, oh, shit, like, where is that little thing I'm supposed to be? So you always have to like – you can see – from the side of the rapid quite easily the whole thing and so you always have to pick a little curl or whatever little marker that you're going to see from your boat perspective at the top of the at the pool above the rapid so that you know where to enter in you know oh
1: you got to pick a landmark you got to pick a there's landmark so much going on
0: yeah we'll say the rapid's 50 meters wide or something right you know or even if it's narrow like it it can make a huge difference in a shoot if you're a meter to the left or right of something you know it can make the world of difference now you're into the bad part of the line that you didn't want to go into you know so what are you looking for when you're looking for a line um you know like there's different features in a rapid like uh they're hydraulics like you'd get at the bottom of a falls you can also get like a low fall that it's called a hole where you have a boulder the water pours over that boulder and then it backfills it with a big raging wave like a big crashing foamy pile and those are if you get stuck in that because your boat floats um that thing can tumble you around for you know it's called getting worked
1: <laughs> so you'll get stuck
0: you in get that stuck area. in those and, and certainly you're a spin cycle you're in a spin cycle yeah and and but all holes are different and you always look for ones that are called smiley holes and a smiley one is one that the edges of it spill out downstream so if you do get stuck in it, you can probably surf your way out of it. Whereas a frowner, the edges go upstream, so it's like a bowl. So you're not going to get out of that without swimming. I, I mean, you can obviously you could surf out of it. You can there's different things you can do, but you're going to get worked probably. You're going to get dumped probably repeatedly in the wave. So you have to have the ability to roll back up in it and all that kind of stuff, right? So and, and certainly another skill in whitewater kayaking is surfing, right? So we always had you always. Any kayaker would have two boats. I had a creek boat, which was a high volume stubby, tough boat that has that 's good for running white water. You want more air inside the inside the boat, you know so you surface had a hull that was better for a little faster so it's shorter boat. Um, it was a little longer than the surf boat okay, but on the shorter side, yeah um, and then a surf boat is basically like a, a very short flat bottomed like a snowboard kind of, you know, and you're in that. And that's the only boat that I have currently in my garage is a a surf boat, but I used to have two, but by surfing, it gets you really good at getting out of holes when you get stuck in a hole because you're a good surfer. So it's a great, you have to, the two go part and parcel when you, if someone gets into kayaking, surfing is is part of the game. So and and some kayakers kayak. only surf. Some kayakers only surf. They don't want to run stuff.
1: So what is surfing then? So
0: um, it's the same idea as that, as that hole I was talking about where you have a boulder in the river underneath that the water's pouring over, and then it's backfilling. Yeah, that raging. Cycle, you're getting worked. Yeah, so you can surf in a hole. There's different holes that are at higher volumes. Say the, the water is bigger and faster, so it's pouring over that. So then you got more space between you know, where the frothing part of the hole is and and it's called the trough, right? And yep. so different holes. So for example, up on the Churchill where I go surfing like once a year, if I'm lucky, <laughs> twice a year, if I'm really lucky, <laughs> um, there's a great wave in a rapid that is called Surf City, um, aptly named because there's this awesome wave there. And it's not a hole, it's a wave. and And so it looks like from the shore, it would look like, the kayaker is just all the moving water is going past the kayaker, and they're just staying on one spot. That's oh, what that's what it looks that's like. That's what surfing is. That's what surfing is. But when you look at what they're surfing on, it looks like a big wave, and yeah, nobody really would deep. even put that two and two together until you see something like that and go, "Oh yeah, it is a wave," and of course you can surf that.
1: So you're sitting in you're sitting in the kayak. S- you're
0: sitting still. in your boat, and you're you you've come out of an eddy, An eddy is like a still spot on uh, beside the rapid, and you peel out onto the wave and then you get on the wave and you might have to do a a paddle too quick to pop and stay on the wave and then you're on there and now the water is skidding underneath you and you're on the wave and you can carve around you can do spins you're not paddling at all you're not paddling at all I mean you are like obviously while you're doing balance strokes you're doing rudder strokes you're doing maybe a power stroke or two if you start backing off the wave to put yourself back on the wave Uh, or backstrokes if you're back surfing um, there's lots of strokes, obviously going in, into it, but it's different. You're you're using your paddle more as a, a method of of steering your your boat. You're, you know, trying to do tricks. So yeah, you, you, you don't need propulsion cool. or anything right now. No, no, you're just using a paddle to like do flat spins, or um, you can get your boat hopping and and do different moves like a blunt, where you like you get the boat hopping, and then in the air you you like turn it on its side and do a, sort of a another move as a cartwheel, where you. You'd be vertical and 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 and,
1: vertical and then you're doing a barrel roll. Yeah,
0: this. you're kind of doing a barrel roll, but you're you're vertical. So you're like sink your stern and then you power stroke, sink your bow and then you power stroke, sink your stern. You try and link as many of those as you can before you either blow off the wave or, uh, or you flip upside down and wash off. You know. Oh, okay. And the um, surfing
1: skill is needed when you're in that waterfall to learn to ride yeah, and balance, oh yeah. and then get out of there. And
0: it's the best way to practice if you are a, a, a river runner. It's the best way to practice those skills because the rivers aren't always flowing. Like there are some rivers around, like the Ottawa River, for example, and in Canada is a is a mecca. People come from everywhere to paddle it. It's got huge rapids. There's all these uh, rafting companies on it, and it's a high volume river that stays rapidy all summer. Whereas like Thunder Bay. There's only a one or two rivers that they all drop after the, the spring flood. And, and then all you really have is a couple surf waves to practice on and a couple of rapids you can run. Like we were lucky enough that there, there's a, um, not the Kananaskis, the river that's there, uh, the um, has rapids you can run, grade four rapids you can run all summer long. So there was always stuff you could run. Um, but we'd mostly just surf right and and certainly in the spring when you haven't paddled in the winter there was another wave uh, that was dam controlled on the same river and they would release early in February and March um, to avoid flood because that river goes through Thunder Bay and they've had a couple floods in town and so now they do a pre-release they lower the reservoir and they release early to drop the reservoir in case there's a big flood year Um, gives them a bit of space to do that, right? And and but it for us, there's this rapid called Crooked Rapids, it had three surfways on it. And so we'd be in there surfing for at least a month, if not a month and a half before spring breakup, early. So we'd take like propane heaters so that you could and you go on days that are like minus five or zero, because you get a bunch of days in February that are not crazy. And it's fine. You're wearing a dry top, you've got neoprene mitts on, you've got a, a neoprene head cap under your helmet you're warm you're hot in fact you know
1: and you extend your season that way and get yeah. ready for it you
0: can get ready for the spring because then you're all warmed up you're yeah. in shape your your whitewater skills are good and you're working on moves in the waves and stuff and by the time it comes time to running and, and what a difference you'd see between you know people that also ran rivers but had full-time jobs and weren't students uh they just show up and man like it would be a yard sale like they'd be out of shape, they wouldn't, they'd be nervous, they wouldn't have great skill, but they love running stuff because they didn't have very many frontal lobe left or I don't know, you know, like, <laughs> what their problem was. But, like, but it was certainly dangerous. And, like, man, like, you know, one of the guys we paddled with, actually, after I left, died. He died in a in a rapid. because And it was, it would have been because of this reason, you know. Like, he was a dentist and he just didn't have time to, like, to, like, but he had balls like he loved running shit and and he he was always one of the staples to to come out but uh, you know like you got to be ready for it. it's like a jiu-jitsu tournament you would probably want to practice a bit before you get into that right like true you're going to do better you want to take that calculated risk that's right yeah oh totally calculated risk yeah i mean all all of the skills just become better your, your re- river reading skills your your strength your paddles everything it's all like why wouldn't you you know and before that we'd be in the pool in like december january we'd be there's like the kayak club so we'd go to the university pool and you'd practice doing hand rolls and you know you could like do fun stuff like take the airbags out of your boat and then like fill it full of water and then you get two people to swim you down to the bottom of the the deep end and and then you'd slowly resurface like you know fun stuff like that you holding your breath is a good thing like Oh, so you practiced practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: you gave the situation the gravity it yes, required.
0: Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. How did you know to do that? I, I think I just um, I just loved it so much. I was so into it that I just wanted to do everything whitewater. Like my four-year degree turned into five because of that. Absolutely. I deliberately took less courses. Also, I don't like to be overloaded with five or six courses like some people. I'm happier with four. I do better in them as well. <laughs> so maybe you know a bit of both but but also the kayaking probably didn't help because i was kayaking all the time you know i mean that was more of what it was than actually making a conscious decision to 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 do it like my first year when i got into kayaking my dry top because i couldn't afford anything was a raincoat a cheap raincoat and duct tape and i duct taped it around my wrist onto my onto my glove and the same around my neck, which didn't work, of course. And just that's what I use as a dry top, you know, in the cold water. So and you
1: love, you you live for that. that I point. did. Yeah, I
0: did. And I'd love to call myself a kayaker still, but I can't really because all I do is like go surf twice a year if I'm lucky, you know. But you still love it. I love it. I, I, would, I would love to be up there. Every time I go, I, I'm like, damn it, you know, because like after the third day, you're just getting better. Like you pick up where you left off you're working on the same moves I was working on when I was good. You know,
1: what drew thing. you to the water so much?
0: Um, I grew up like my grand was like, um, you know, went to like, uh, camp, in you know, Algonquin park in in Ontario and it was a big canoeing park. And she was like guided a little bit. And way back in the day when there wasn't female guides, you know, like she was one of the few, that was doing that, and that always, we had a cottage in, in near Algonquin Park, and there's a canoe and a sailboat, and I, I, was, I was the, cut, the kid that, that loved sailing and loved canoeing, and yeah, I went to a camp as well as a kid, Camp Twingo, and it has a canoeing program, and they do trips, and then I got chosen, um, or applied for, they do a three-week trip, and when you're like 16, um, kind of at the end of your camping time, and so I got to do that trip, And so that ignited all of it, you know, that's where I got into guiding and the white water and all that stuff. It just, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like they got you young. Why wouldn't, yeah, they got me young when I was impressionable and my brain was still forming.
1: (laughs) 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 Okay. How do you recollect yourself when you need to do something dangerous in this water?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I've had a number of experiences where I've gotten stuck in a hole or something and I've, just keep trying to roll up. Um, there was one circumstance where I got stuck in a hole and it was above a falls. So I, I knew I couldn't really swim. Like it was, I probably could have got out if I swam, but it was close enough that, you know, 20, 30, 30, 40 feet away was this falls. And so I just knew like, I cannot, I can't swim here. So I just kept rolling up. And I think it was like on my seventh attempt, I finally got out. You know, um, other holes that didn't have the same consequences, I'd just swim out of them. I'd try and fight for a while and then you end up getting worked and, you know, and you fight for a while, you try and you can get out, get out on the corners or sometimes there's like a V, in a hole that you can kind of get out on the V. Um, and this, this particular hole, I think they still call it Darren's hole because I <laughs> seem to always get worked in it, <laughs> you know.
1: So on that one, were you trying that to... That one stuff?
0: I swam out and I, I, there's a technique where you can... They say when you get stuck in a bad hole that as you'll keep recycling, it'll keep pumping you, you'll pop up at the back of it and then boom, 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 back down into the trough and then it'll spit you back up to the top and then back down in the trough, even swimming. And so there's a technique where if you're stuck in a bad hole where when you come back up on the top and you start heading back down to the trough that you try to plunge into the green water, the deep water underneath it so that you'll go deep underneath the hole and then pop up behind it.
1: So it can't catch you again, so
0: I can't catch you again, so I did that. I held on to my paddle, not intentionally, but I realized after that it was the paddle, me trying that technique of like each time I recycled, I'd try to like end up in the trough with a you know like hoping that I'd go underneath it and paddle really helped. I could feel it catch the like flow, and I just held onto to it and like came up, you know, but like another time i there's this falls called Pigeon Falls on the minnesota ontario border up in thunder bay and um it's like a 20 foot falls and i ran it and i messed it up and i ended up behind the falls um in the little room behind the falls oh so
1: it was calm there
0: no i mean no it's not very big no i mean it's behind the waterfall it's like walking if you've ever walked behind a waterfall it's like super loud really wet wasn't a very big space it was probably a meter by two meters or something and I was in there with my boat, and I'd just gotten this boat It was new and you know, but like it's funny how your brain just sort of slows down, and like things become logical and calculated and so I tried a few different things, like tried to climb higher on the back wall of the falls, so that when I jumped through the curtain like the the curtain of the falls that I wouldn't come back into the little room behind the falls that I'd come out somewhere in front of it
1: yeah so it wouldn't keep spitting you back in there exactly
0: right and so then i like i remember looking at the boat one last time being like see you later good friend it's been a good two months i've had you (laughs) my brand new (laughs) boat had no airbags in it so it was just like yeah and so i jumped through with my paddle and tucked into a little ball and everything went black because it's like deep and and i was under there for and it's all under film on film too so all my friends are like kind of freaking out because i was back there for three minutes and they were like he's dead and then you can hear them say there's his paddle there's his paddle after at the three minute point and the boat followed me out it just like hitched a ride with me and i came out and i was super calm i was like probably full of adrenaline and like i was just really calm and i was like "Oh, i'm all right man you know it's like crashing after a bike i guess you're like oh yeah you always look to see who who saw you you're like, Oh yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You know? And then later you're like, Oh man, my elbow, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so did you get the boat back? Got the boat back, everything, paddle, boat, everything. And afterwards we were like, all of us were just jacked with adrenaline. So we went and did this hike, which was happened to be a beautiful hike that overlooks Lake Superior. We went and ran this hike and yeah, I think we like smoked a joint after and it didn't do a damn thing. Cause we were just like burning with adrenaline, you know, like,
1: yeah, that's a like but- natural high of my but friend almost died. I almost died. Yeah, almost yeah, died. yeah.
0: But that falls. I knew I had to run it again, right? Because it was like I have to get back on the horse. It's like you'd say that to your kid, you know, if they crash on their bike and oh, I don't want to ride anymore. It's kind of important that they, that they do like just get on the bike and ride again, you know. And like that's exactly the same strategy for any of those sports. I would say if you want to continue with it, depending on what it is, like you know, I and kiting it you can have some pretty scary things happen same in whitewater you can have some scary things happen and lots of people quit particularly in kiting you get people that get into the sport it's got such a stiff learning curve you know and then they have what's called a kite mare you know lion gets hooked on something and they get dragged or they hit something or whatever like things can happen but like when you're saying kiting, you're talking you're talking about kiteboarding Kite yeah okay. sorry i'm transitioning i'll go back to whitewater no next. no this but like, is great it's, it's the same thing it's the same yeah get back on the horse you know like so i went we went around the falls like two days later and like i got the line then you know i obviously knew what i did wrong the last time but and made for damn sure that i w- had corrected for that
1: how'd and, you get over the fear to,
0: to do it the second time um well i knew i could run it because it's it wasn't a hard line you know, and it happened to be that it was a lower level, and I I got too close into the middle, and I kind of got hung up on a rock above the falls, and I lost my speed, and then that caused me to, and it's sort of two curtains, and the one curtain kind of folds a little bit behind the other one, and I ended up going on the side that goes under the other one, and that's how I ended up in that little room, right? So I just knew, don't go near the shallow stuff in the middle, and stick to the right, and no problem. And you knew I knew the that path. I, I, I'm like i'm i've had done that before where i'd messed up a, a, a line and like run something backwards or whatever and like you know like you just it's part of the sport is like managing your fear and being logical about about it and that's part of that system that i had we all had of of on the day the 30 to one minute second rule of yeah you if can I don't see feel the it line. yeah because you have to your mind is so important like you're you're you know for whatever reason you're not feeling it today like you're it's like having a bad day you don't know why you're having a bad day or having a bad day at jiu-jitsu you don't know why like you some days are better than others that's what like ufc fighters talk about like you got to prepare for the your worst case self and it's the same in, in whitewater or in kiteboarding you have to prepare for that worst case self and you have to be in in the case of like kiteboarding you have to i i see it as like a pilot's checklist you know like in terms of like going out on really, really windy days, you know, because the wind is, is exponential. It's, everything's more powerful. The mistakes are far more severe if they happen. Um, and so you, and you have to launch on land, and la- launching and landing can be pretty dicey. Uh, it can be, right? But it also, there's no reason for it to be if you follow a sequence of steps. and And that always would make me feel more comfortable because then it's like, well... Like, of course, my kite's in the right position, the lines are clean. I've done this a hundred times before. Um, you know what I mean, like yeah, you've it's done just, everything to mitigate the risk. Yeah, you're sort of check it. It's like check boxes, and then the whitewater was kind of the same. It was like checks and and like juggling lemons, or <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that analogy for like in in like canoe tripping. We always use the analogy of juggling lemons, and like a lemon is something that's like say it's bad weather, it's windy. Another lemon would be it's cold rain. Another lemon would be you've got two people that are looking cold. So now you're dragging three lemons. Um, what would the four? Lightning. There's a lightning storm brewing somewhere. That's Now you got four lemons. You get too many lemons, you're eventually going to drop them all. And that's what happens. And then the shit hits the fan and things go sideways. Now those two cold people are hypothermic. You've lost a boat. You know what I mean? It's still raining. Like the lemon thing can be used in the, in the other way in in the confidence way to be like you know you're not juggling but you've got let's call them oranges you've got th- your oranges are confidence so you know that you can do it you saw the line um you've got the skill you've got the people on safety you've run it before so now you got four oranges that's yeah, not you the evidence you've got the evidence stacked, you the evidence stacked so you've got your check mark stacked so then then go do it and go do it before you th- talk yourself out of it
1: so it's pretty logical for you. It's not yeah. an emotional response no. to come back.
0: Yeah, it's very logical. And I, and I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's because it is logical. Like if you're going to, why would you let your amygdala get you carried away? Because then you would never do anything. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, probably a lot of smarter people than me <laughs> decide that, well, that's a stupid thing to do, you know? Like, However,
1: would- <laughs> it doesn't seem it's stupid because you have the safeguards there.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With yeah. the
1: kiteboarding, what do you mean it's, it's dangerous to launch on land.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, it's always easier in the winter to get into kiting because, uh, you can go out in lighter winds and you're launching your kite to start. You have to launch it, right. You have to set it up on the snow and kind of put some snow on the lead, the tail edge, and then walk your lines out, make sure they're clean. And then you hot launch it. You launch it right in the, Right in the most powerful part of the, the wind window, they call it. So you pull that yeah, and kite then you're, up and yeah. the
1: launch, the wind catches it.
0: Yeah. And then but then it's a you know, it's like if you've held onto a tarp on a windy day, it's got a lot of power or a sailboat, like you know, you're talking about a fifty ton boat and it's just cruising with wind power. Like it's a lot of power, you know, and kites can be big and you need it big enough to pull you, uh, so it can really really pull you, especially off the start. But in winter you've got your snowboard or your skis on so anything poppy and like any kind of pop that occurs or during launch you're on your ski so you can just ski it out whereas in the summer you have to launch and land on the either a drift launch on the water or typically people do it on the beach launch and land someone catches it someone launches you but there's also self-launch techniques that you have to be good at um, and you don't have a board to and you need way more horsepower in the summer to go on the water right because snow is you don't less need, friction then. Yeah, and you kind of typically want lighter winds uh, in the winter, and you can get away with lighter winds, whereas that's kind of the, the – the, as you're progressing in, in the sport, more wind becomes an area that you move into, and eventually you buy yourself a, a high wind kite, like a small kite, and that way you have your – they call it your kite quiver, so then you've got maybe three kites for different sizes for different winds, bigger kites for lighter winds – smaller kites for higher winds you know and um so it's more it's more dangerous because you need more horsepower for the board to work on the water makes sense right it's like you could imagine that a board compared to a snowboard a snowboard is going to have far less resistance than a a wakeboard yeah or a surfboard Uh, so you need that that pump and then typically like if you live on the ocean there's light wind days but around here on the lighter side it, it's either blowing or it's not you don't want to be on the water it's blowing it's great but now nah, it stops and then you're stuck you know like you're kind of sitting there waiting um so typically people will go out when it's a lot higher horsepower because it's, it's more fun everything works better but launching a landing on high horsepower day can be dicey you know and especially if it's like an eight meter day which is a small kite um you got a ton of wind you so know, what's eight meter day What is that? an mean? eight meter day would be like a 40 gusting 60 kilometers an hour which is quite a lot of wind and so if you if you fail one of those check marks you have a bad launch or you did something foolish or you didn't think it out or you rushed or you whatever you're beginner you, you know you, you probably wouldn't want to be holding on to an eight square meter kite in winds that are gusting sixty. You can imagine what that would do to you without a board on your feet.
1: Oh, is the eight meters is yeah, square- is
0: the, the square footage of the kite. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, you're gonna get yanked, right? Yeah. And like there's obstacles, there's fences, there's I mean, the spot we go, there's no fence, but there's cars and shit. And like yeah you don't wanna like yeah, it can be can be bad, right? Whereas winter typically you're not I'd never go out when it's gusting sixty in the winter. It's not fun. It's too too much, you know. Okay. It's like a different sport. Yeah. Um, So winter. That's what I mean. Like summer is harder. You have to have much more of a checklist. But I do the same thing in the winter, you know, because I like to use a bigger kite than a smaller kite. So you're always kind of like, and some people take wind meters with them so you can see what it is. But after a while, you just kind of know what it is. Plus you find websites like there's the Navcan website that you can look at the actual live wind at the airport. So you know going out what it's doing typically it might be a little different where you are but um, so you need to make sure the conditions are right yeah conditions are right and, and again it's risk management you're picking spots that are that are smart you're going on the downwind side of the road or the downwind side of a fence or power oh, yeah, power so it's not, lines so it's not
1: or, punching you into yeah them. yeah okay. like
0: all those sort of things you need to make smart choices around
1: are you on the ground or is it pulling you, or what's happening?
0: Yeah, it's like it's sailing essentially. Oh, it's sailing! Yeah. It's sailing, it's but
1: on land, on with land, a board strapped to your feet. Yeah,
0: a snowboard or skis, downhill skis, or in the in the summer, it's uh, on a surfboard or on a, a bi-directional board uh, like a wakeboard. But they're, oh, they're and different. It's just smooth though, and that's smooth. Oh yeah, it's super nice. I mean, it's choppy if there's waves, and if yeah. there, you can surf if there's if there's waves. But the waves, bottom of the can... board is smooth. There's oh, nothing yeah. there. Yeah, 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 super smooth. There's fins. There's fins on them yeah yeah they always have fins different configurations and stuff yeah and it's um it's just like sailing like you wear a big harness like you would for windsurfing it's got a hook on it and then the kite's got four lines and it's got it's got a loop and you put that loop on your hook on your harness and there's quick releases built into all that like it's quite advanced now like they've had a number of years that they've advanced the technology and and they're quite safe i mean it's still a dangerous sport but you've got all these safety releases where that chicken loop will very easily release itself from the hook. Um, oh, if things get too powerful? Yeah, if things get dicey or something happens, your lines get all messed up or something, you know, you've got a, you've got a, a number of ejection points that you can release yourself from the kite. Um, so
1: this is strapped. You have a harness on you and it's strapped pretty much to the center of your chest. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Big, thick back harness with a big metal stainless steel hook. And you put that loop on there and then you put the donkey dick through it and uh and that holds the loop on so you're attached to the kite and then those lines that go off of that loop go to the front of the kite and then steering lines they go to the, the tail edge of the kite so if you know anything about sailing like the mast is the leading edge of the sail and in sailing you can you can let the boom out the boom is what holds the bottom of the sail and a, and a sail is essentially an aircraft wing, right? Um, and, and there's no coincidence that, like, the advent of schooners back in the day coincided with the invention of flight. So what's a schooner? A schooner what's... is the, like, you think of a classic sailboat, you'd think of a tall ship with, like, the big square sails. And those were good for just the trade winds, which are, like, downwind sailing. And so you'd use the trade winds to, to travel across the world, right? Um, a schooner gave boats the ability to sail into the wind. So now you can sail upwind on an angle. It's called tacking. And so you zigzag upwind. And you can go at a, at a certain degree angle based on the performance of the boat. So you can sail upwind. And so that's how sailboats today obviously work. Is and that because of
1: the shape of the sail? That's because
0: the shape of the sail is the same shape as an aircraft wing. So it creates a low-pressure spot on the inside of the sail it has the same look if you went and looked at a sail that's puffed out correctly and they're sewn that way so there's a little bulb at the front like there would be on the aircraft wing and then it and then it smooths out to the end and so what i'm getting at is that you can sheet that sail out yeah. or you can pull it in which powers the sail up oh and so on the kite getting back to the kite your your the front of the kite is on your chicken loop and so when you it's called barring out when you let the bar out it it releases the wind out of the back of the sail out of the back of the kite so you have all of this fluctuation in power in built into the system just on the bar it's very intuitive so if you bar in it powers up if you bar out it dumps wind out of the sail Oh, because so, it
1: doesn't collect the wind in there. It opens yeah, it, it, it opens it, it up to it, let the wind out. Yeah, it spills it out the back,
0: makes it less uh, less powerful. So, so you it, can
1: steer these things.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. You steer them. You steer them to sort of generate wind, but then you're doing the same thing as sailing. You're just mowing the lawn, so to speak. You're going back and forth. Doing you, those S's. Doing those. Yeah, you can tack upwind. You know, go somewhere. And and people love to do what's called a downwinder, where you you drive upwind. Like when we go to Cape Hatteras or these different kiting, like Cancun's a great kiting spot. Um, you try and set up downwinders. So you'll like go upwind. So you go, you're driving against the wind. Yeah. You drive upwind. Someone drops you off. Everyone dumps their gear out. You set up your kites, you launch, you get in the water and then you don't have to worry about tacking upwind because it takes a bit of juice in your legs to like, because you're, you're edging against that wind, you know, and in a sailboat, it has a huge fin, a keel. And that's what edges against the power of the wind. And that keel allows it to cuts through the, the water and, oh. and it allows it, it locks the sail. So you won't just blow down wind. It like like an aircraft wing, it sort of it fins you up wind, you know, and the same with kiting, but you're the you're the keel now. You're bored and the fins are the keel. So you can imagine if you're going up wind, you have to push harder on your legs against the wind to to maintain that tack. So it, t- you know, it takes a physical toll on you. It does. So it's easier to do a downwinder, and it's more fun. So you can jump, and you can do all the stuff. You can just lose wind, lose ground all the time. And when you're a beginner, it's always a, a you're always trying to get back to where you started, because initially, that's the big fear of beginners. is like, well, how do I get back to, you know, my backpack or my car, right? Because you're just losing ground all the time, the downwinder. <laughs> and so you need to know how to go back up wind. And once you achieve that as a beginner, you're like freedom you know awesome now I can go anywhere and yeah anyways but the downwind is fun because you don't have to worry about getting upwind and when you do maneuvers like jumps or different things you lose ground right and so you're always like tacking upwind a bunch and then doing a bunch of tricks and jumps and losing ground losing ground losing ground then you get to a point where you got to tack back upwind again so it's nice to do a downwinder where you drive upwind a bunch of kilometers and then you've got all this but you don't have to worry about it's much more relaxed you can just who cares you know like whatever do whatever you want it doesn't matter you don't have to end up back at the beach you started on you you want to end up 10k down at the beach that you're going to where your car is parked you know oh yeah and so you're going ride up there and yeah you
1: go, then you, the wind blows yeah. you to where you're gonna yeah you do like a <laughs> shuttle you take two
0: <laughs> cars and whatever or if you're lucky someone drops you off and then you end up back at where your car is parked well, oh, no, that's great. And places like Mexico or Cape Hatteras are great for that because it's just a long shoreline of beach forever for hundreds of kilometers. So, you know, you can, you can go 10K up or 8K, depending how long you want to be out there, and do a downwinder. It's super fun. Get a group of people, go do a downwinder, you know, and you all stick together and watch out for each other. And that's a great community. It's a good community. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of fun. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: What um, have you learned from doing all these extreme sports? That you transfer to your everyday life?
0: I don't know. I mean, I I, I just want to do them more. <laughs> That's what I've transferred, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I got to work. Yeah, I got kids. Um, I I think the risk management thing probably like I think it helps with like me dealing with stressful situations at work uh, or at home. Um, I mean, certainly those skills are transferable, but like really, it's just a selfish thing. In the long run, it's. I just want to go kiting or I want to go kayaking or let's go do a canoe trip, you know? <laughs>
1: so, and you admit it to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a good, yeah, it's a good, good time. And I mean, I, I got into the, the kite sport in, in the Arctic. I had come, I had come from the kayaking scene and moved up there for my first job. And that's kind of where I got into it was up there. You know, so I was looking for, Another sport to do that I could do outdoors that was fun. I like that kind of stuff. Like you got the, into this in, in the Arctic. Arctic. Yeah, I lived up there for four four years, <laughs> and got into it up there with another guy that was was adventurous type. That um the two of us kind of like, you know, I don't even know how it started. Right, like I think he oh he had a an expedition kite, which is a kite that's just a downwind kite that like expedite arctic expeditions will use with skis cross-country skis to like on a windy day you get a tailwind which you can do on canoe trip too it's an awesome fun time on a canoe trip where you get a a tailwind and you've got a long stretch you can put up a tarp or something
1: oh yeah super fun makeshift sail yeah
0: lots of people (laughs) have done that it's like a natural thing to do all it takes is a is a a stretch of water and someone going dude we got a tailwind let's put up a tarp or something (laughs) You know, let's and use our arms. Let's use nature. Yeah, Let's use nature. <laughs> then you can sit there and eat cashews and <laughs> cruise along. Right. Yeah, definitely. But, so I, we got into it with that kite and then very quickly I bought our own traction kites. Cause those expedition kites, you can't go upwind on, you know, and Yeah, so, they don't give
1: you as, as much of that control no, to go up the wind.
0: No, you can just kind of slowly hold your line, but you're always losing ground with those kites. They're meant for downwinding. Um, you know, but the modern kites are are like a sailboat. You can you can tack up wind with them. And so we both ended up buying a kite and then another one and another one and another one. What well, were you doing in the Arctic? I was teaching. I was working at the high school and I was I had I when I finished my first degree, um, you know, you look for jobs and you're like, what do I do with this like arts degree? <laughs> so I went to teachers college and in Thunder Bay again and paddled my brains out while I was there and then moved to the Arctic where lots of people go, some, some people go to teach because they're always looking for teachers and they pay a huge amount of money and my wife also wanted to go north and so we both got jobs up there and yeah, the rest is history. We spent four years there and then moved to Saskatoon.
1: How was living there?
0: Oh, it was awesome. It was amazing. Yeah, it was um, awesome. Like we did canoe trips every summer. I was, it's on Victoria Island, huge island that was really cool totally different like wind is a huge problem or factor and portaging sometimes you can't even carry the canoes you have to drag them like there's all these different things you know and that was fun and we met Inuit friends doing playing badminton of all things the Inuit are really into badminton (laughs) (laughs) they like the sort of single sports right and so we met a bunch of like and you meet people and then they take you hunting and they take you fishing. So then you buy an ATV and a skidoo and you go with them and want, help them and uh, got exposure to that kind of stuff. And then I met this guy, Brent Bodie, who had a dog, uh, dog sledding company in Baffin Island for years. And he ended up doing, um, and he worked for the government at the same time, and he ended up doing the first uh, confirmed pole trip unsupported pole trip to North Pole, him and uh, Will Steger and a, and a couple other people. And um, I've actually got the cover of the National Geographic in my house, of which is pictured picture of him, um, on that trip. It was like 88, I think, is when they did that. And they did it with dogs, and they did it unsupported. It was the first confirmed, confirmed right? Because Perry, I guess, that American explorer, said that he did it, but it's basically been proven that he didn't, that it was kind of a made-up story. Um, and so they're the first to have done that he actually got the order of Canada for that back in the day so that's the crazy dude that I ended up kiting with
1: you got into kiting with that with gentleman. that guy
0: with that guy yeah Brent Bodie yeah and so we ended up of course about me being a tripper and him having this insane arctic experience um like 20 30 years as a dog sled guide and then doing this pole trip and he, he's like when he lived there he was a, a consultant for all Anyone that was doing anything in the Arctic, they'd they'd come and consult him about it because he's he was kind of living there. And so you this know.
1: guy was your mentor. In yeah, yeah, area.
0: yeah. But we were getting into it. Oh, totally, absolutely. And we ended up doing a whole bunch of trips using kites. In I've done I don't know about five of them now, like lengthy lengthy trips. The longest we did was like eight or nine hundred k. Hard to tell because you're you know all over the place and the GPS wasn't on the whole time, so. It, We'd never actually have an accurate, um, as far as the crow flies, the, the distance is like about 800 K. Um, but we probably went further than that, you know, 700 really? K, something like that. And then we would go, you know, 800, 900 K. And this is like with that. the kite board using the kite and then downhill skis and then, <laughs> and then, uh, sleds attached to us. And on days that are windy, you kite and pull your gear and you'd put your sleds side by side so that they don't dump. And then on no, non-wind days, you'd put them one in front of the other and take a, like a backpack frame with no backpack and use that as your means of pulling the sled. Oh, slides. you're pulling the sled now. You're pulling the sled now. And so we sort of migrated into alpine touring skis, which is like what they use for, people use for touring in the mountains where you the ski, basically the heel detaches, it's a downhill ski. That you can click in once you've hiked up the mountain and you ski down with your poles. Um, You put skins on them. That's full length thing that sticks to the ski and it's like shark skin. It like gives you traction. Gives you crazy traction. Actually, all the new cross country skis have that velvety looking material as the as the grip part on the cross country ski now. But in alpine touring, it's the full length. So once you've hiked up your mountain, you're going to ski. You then rip your skins off, roll them up and change the binding around so that you can step into it hard and now you got a downhill ski you wear downhill boots that are well they're alpine touring boots but they're they look and feel like um, downhill ski boots right and so we ended up using that kind of setup because that way you don't have to carry your skis but the first few trips we used like snowshoes and you know different no, things and and, and then you got to carry, carry. all your skis and it was just downhill heavy downhill skis and your boots and so we we sort of migrated into that that side of things where we were using Al- alpine Tearing stuff yeah. and there's there's videos out there there's there's one that i made it's called uh Ulioituk by kite it's on vimeo yeah. um i didn't know much about hashtags back then so there's probably no hashtags on it but it's there and it i actually entered it into the banff mountain film festival it didn't get in but you pay 75 bucks and essentially they give you a free feedback on it so you to me, it was like, well, why wouldn't I do that? A, I might get in, and B, you get all this feedback on your video for
1: seventy five dollars from professionals. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I think it showed in the like Bamf, the actual like hardcore like the festival that takes place in Banff is like two to three weeks, and they show hundreds of films. So I think it was in that that all, in the mix of the hundreds that people submit, you could have seen it there, but it didn't. It wasn't on the tour. Like each city will pick which videos they want that were selected from a, a a short list or whatever and like Saskatoon will select the Alpine club selects which ones they want, you know? And then, so each city, you might see different movies, but. Oh yeah. Cause they um, decide which ones they want to show. Yeah. 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 It might yeah. have different timelines or yeah. 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 Based so, on interest. So nature's but, always kind of drawn you to it. Always draw me to it. Yeah. And certainly my art is kind of, yeah. You know, linked to that as well, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. what well, should we call it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely.